Well, good morning, everyone. I'm Baron Miller. I'll be uh, filling in these next few weeks uh, for Pastor Joe and Alyssa. And we're going to be preaching through some marriage and uh, relationship issues in a series I've titled Love in a Dangerous Time. I came up with this title from uh, an old song from the 80s by a Canadian artist named Bruce Cockburn. And the song was called Lovers in a Dangerous Time. And it had to do with a couple that was going through kind of Cold War tensions. But it has this great lyric about kicking the darkness until it bleeds daylight. And that's what relationships can be, what a marriage can be. Two people kicking at the darkness, the darkness of sin, of selfishness, and insecurity, and finding the light and joy in faithfulness, humility, and selflessness. And I think we can all agree this is a dangerous time. The time under tension that many of us have faced during COVID, whether you call it a a lockdown or a quarantine or a a house arrest, really, might have been a dream scenario when you first met the person that you're in love with. You thought, I would love nothing more than just to be locked up in the Disney castle with this person and have this extended period of unbroken fellowship. And then the opportunity actually happened. And uh, many of us are are scratching our heads and rethinking what we once thought. And if you are a parent out there, you know exactly what I am saying. And I recognize that right now, some of you are hearing this. You're on the couch with your mate, and there is a nervous tension bubbling up inside your tummy. And that 18-inch chasm between you and the person you love might as well be as wide as the Grand Canyon. And for some of you, maybe you've gone through a divorce or you're in the midst of ending a relationship and this series subject is the last thing you want to hear. I get it. Maybe you're single and you're loving it and you're thinking, already I want to check out, this is not for me. And that's okay too. But let me say this. In the 19 and a half years that I've been married, I have learned that what works in my marriage relationship has crossover into the other relationships in my life. And so what I offer in the coming weeks is a challenge to find what works for you. Each week, I want to provide some exercise that you can do either between you and your spouse or your children, between maybe roommates, uh, other friendship uh, co-workers, relationships that you have in your life. And my hope and my prayer is that in the end, no one feels left out, but rather built up and more equipped for the relationships in your life, whether they be marriage or otherwise. So with that being said, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are a scattered church right now in various rooms and couches or we're on vacations or whatever. And wherever we're at right now, tuning in, I pray that you open up our hearts and our minds to what you will have for us right now. And Lord, for me, as, uh, as the psalmist once prayed, God, that you would open up my lips, that my mouth can bring forth your praise. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was a kid growing up, and I'm I'm 43 years old right now, so if if you're probably 35 or younger, you might not remember these moments, but once a year, something would arrive in the mail. It was the most magical gift that society could ever present. It was the Sears catalog. It was about 800 pages thick, of a photo of everything uh, you could ever want to see that could ever possibly be sold, including some boring stuff to kids like 
I don't know, auto supply materials or whatever, but the toy section was so great. It was like 47 pages of photos of kids that were just happy and they were playing with whatever you wanted. And every year in the Sears catalog, there'd be this one ridiculous toy I would look at and I would scratch my head and think, boy, the kid looks happy, but this toy sucks. And it was called a rock tumbler. It was this box with this uh, sort of cement mixer looking cylinder in it. And it came with these uh, rough cut rocks. And basically you put them in there and the rock tumbler would spin and spin and spin. And eventually it just, I guess, made gravel. I, I don't know exactly what the, the point of the rock tumbler was, but eventually out of it would emerge these smooth stones. In went something rough with sharp edges, but out came something that I guess to a kid who liked to play with rocks was really pleasant. And I think the rock tumbler is a great analogy for relationships. Because relationships at their best are really designed to grind. We come into some relationship with another person and in the process we smooth out rough parts. In the end, something, the result could be something great. And this shaping and this smoothing, this relentlessness of ourselves, it shapes our character, it shapes our faith. And in the end it can look like putting on new clothes, being kind of a new person. Uh, the Apostle Paul says this to the Colossian church, and this is coming from Colossians chapter 3, starting at verse 12. He says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you have a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. This is sort of the guiding verse for this series in the coming weeks. Um, regardless of your relationship status, that verse perfectly describes what a Christ follower can be. All those virtues. Now when it comes to the specifics of marriage, Paul's address to the Colossian church uh, is, is perfect. He wasn't actually writing about marriage at all, but it fits so well like a tailored, fitted uh, outfit. And yet I know it's not as easy as putting on new clothes. Marriage or any relationship in life feels a bit more, I think, like the rock tumbler than like just putting on new clothes. And so really, that's what sermons are, if you think about it. And especially this one, this is a coaching moment designed for couples, but there's going to be plenty of crossover uh, lessons. And I hope everyone can get behind them, whether you're young or old, you're married, you're single, employed, unemployed, maybe you're a little bit country or a little bit rock and roll. And so for today, I want to go over three biggies, okay? And, and, and in the coming weeks, we're going we're gonna to kind of move through content in different, uh, in different elements of relationships, um, so for today, these three biggies, whether you've thought about marriage in the future, whether you're in a marriage, whether you're coming out of a marriage or a relationship, I want to describe what we find are some myths that we have going into a marriage. I want to talk about some of the expectations that we have going into a marriage relationship. And then I kind of want to close with why marriage? Why do we even do this thing? And, uh, and in that, I'm going to describe something uh, called Marriage is for Losers, which is actually the, the title of, of today's message. Um, 
So it's good that this is a virtually empty room here, so no one is scowling at me or throwing a tomato. But I'll explain the marriages for losers concept later. Uh, let me just jump right in. There's two authors, I think they come out of Seattle, named Les and Leslie Parrott. And they're Christians, they write marriage books. And what I think is the funniest thing about Les and Leslie is you know his name is actually Leslie. But somehow when they came together, one of them had to acquiesce to the other and, and cut their name down to Les. So that's what Les did. So we've got a Les and a Leslie Parrott. They're both PhDs. They're professors at University of Washington. Uh, and they've got a book called Saving Your Marriage Before It Starts. And in it, they describe four myths of marriage. And I want to kind of talk about some of these. The first one is, we expect the exact same thing from our marriage. When two people are coming together, they both have the exact same expectation of what it'll be like. And this myth is based on assumptions that our partner wants or expects the exact same thing from this relationship that we do. Talking about the unspoken rules or any unconscious rules can save you beforehand from a lot of marital frustrations. I had been married for about two weeks, and in one such evening, I had maybe made a proposal to my wife that we might engage in some, uh, some sexual activity. And, uh, and I'm going to keep this PG for everyone. And, and my wife looked at me and she says, what do you expect from this part of our marriage? What, what, how, what, what do you think, how often do we supposed to be doing this? And I, and I, of course, replied, well, one, it doesn't take that long. Two, we should be able to do this all the time, frequently, all, all, why not? We're married. Well, we had a conversation about expectations, right? One of those myths. Had we discussed this in the year that we were engaged before, maybe we would have, could have clarified uh, some of those tense moments. But either way, that was 19 and a half years ago, and here we are today still. So you can overcome these little obstacles. The second myth. Everything good in our relationship, as it stands now, is just going to get better. Everything that we experience that's good now is just going to get better. Practice doesn't always make perfect. Sometimes practice just reinforces bad habits. I know this every time I pick up a guitar and I try and play Poisons, Every Rose Has Its Thorn. It's the same bad version that I figured out when I was like 18 years old. I'm just not good at it. The practicing over the last 25 years has just reinforced really bad guitar habits. This myth stems from the unrealistic and romantic notion that my mate is a saint and they can do no wrong. However, we will all be dissatisfied at some point. And in our dissatisfaction, this myth that everything will just get better is shattered. Brace yourselves now. If you are married, you married a sinner just like you. Okay, sometimes we can forget that. Here's myth number three. Everything bad in my life will disappear, right? The missing piece, you're my missing piece. I think that was like a Shel Silverstein poem. Or if you've seen Jerry Maguire, right, you complete me. It's this hyper-romantic through the tears and the tension, you complete me sort of moment. Or if you're not a Jerry Maguire fan, maybe you're an Austin Powers fan. Uh, that, that also found its way into that movie. What we do when we think that everything bad in my life will disappear because of a relationship, is we are putting undue stress on a person to fix things. We expect somebody else to fulfill us when the truth is only God can. All of the bad in life is meant to be taken to the Lord for healing and for restoration, not 
to our mate. Now, spouses can load share with us during times of burden. That's part of the marital oneness we experience, but it's not fair to expect our spouse to do for us only what God can. I remember uh, when I was deployed to Afghanistan, I was there for eight months, and when, when you come back from a big, long deployment, as the chaplain, I give these briefs, uh, kind of return and reunion, and I talk to all the folks, and especially the married folks, I'd say, hey, your spouse has been home for eight months managing the house and the kids and the bills and, and the, the, the car with the flat tires and everything, and they're thinking right now that once you walk in the door, everything is going to suddenly arrive at this wonderful homeostasis. You're going to fix all the problems that have been building up, and that is an unrealistic expectation to put on somebody. As good as I think I am, in all of my hubris, I know I'm not good enough to walk in a room and just make some, suddenly everything better. It doesn't work that way. We have to be careful with the everything bad in my life will disappear myth. And you know what? No, this myth is applicable to all areas of our life. How often do we believe that if just one thing changed, everything would be better? If we just had a different job, if I worked for a different employee, if I just had a different shift, it would be better. If I made more money, no matter what age you are now, if you go back 10 years and you thought, my life would be so much better if I just had more money, flash forward to now, is money the reason why your life is better or worse? The same fix applies in our life. All of the bad, all of the pain and the suffering must be brought to the Lord for healing and restoration. Here's the fourth myth. My spouse will make me whole. Having an unhealthy dependence on your spouse can be either codependent or enmeshed, and neither are good. Look those up. Those are some great DSM words there. The scripture actually gives us an opposite analogy of this wholeness myth, going back to that you complete me thing. Proverbs 27, 17, the author talks about iron sharpening iron, so one person strengthens another. The rubbing and the grinding to strengthen a relationship as opposed to what we can often fancifully think, which is instant congruency. As people, we just don't work that way. Remember this phrase for all time. It's not about marrying the right partner. It's about being the right partner. Just think about that and think about that in every relationship. It's not just about finding the right friends, but it's about being the right friend. It's not just about uh, finding the right job, but it's about being the right employee. Do you see where I'm going with this? What we think about a marriage can often be what we think about life. If I didn't apply the rock tumbler analogy to marriage, it would still apply to every other scenario. And I know this because I've preached on that story multiple times. I've never used marriage before in it. It just works. The author of Proverbs who talked about iron sharpening iron wasn't talking about marriages at all. And yet it totally works. The marriage stuff that I'm going through isn't for you. That's fine. Find the nuggets. It still applies. And that's what I'm talking about here. Flip the script, see how these principles apply to your own context. What we do with every other sermon is the same thing anyway, right? Every Sunday, we're presenting some content that may or may not be specific to you, but there's always something that you can take out of there. All right, these are four destructive myths, okay? These are four of the destructive myths. I know it's a whirlwind and I'm talking fast. 
because I got a lot of content to go through, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to slow it down a little bit next week, and we're going to laser focus in on a couple things. If any of this stuff really connected with you, go back this week and watch the, the, the video again. You can listen to the podcast. You can take some notes and, um, and so on. Expectations. Let's talk about expectations of marriage. There's this wonderful book, and I highly recommend it. It's called The First Five Years of Marriage. It's an edited work by two uh, folks, Sweetheart and Wooten, and it's, and it's produced by Focus on the Family, and it's got about probably a dozen sections, and each section has about 10, 8, maybe 12 micro chapters that are three or four pages each. And in it, they talk about some of the expectations. And that ch- section has about 10 micro chapters. I want to cover some of that content right now. If you ever get this book, it is really easy to digest. It's a very encyclopedic take on marriages. Here's one of the expectations. And they're always framed as a question. I don't, I don't exactly know why. Why isn't marriage the way I thought it would be? Why isn't this relationship I'm in the way I thought it would be, the way I fantasized about the way it would be? Our marriage expectations come from two different wells that we all draw from. One is our premarital experience with that person, and the other well is our growing up experience with marriage, namely what we saw in our parents. In this courtship or this dating or or you know, whatever we do these days. We are pantomiming this sort of ideal relationship experience. But there's always these built-in safety valves, right? If the pressure's too great, we can release some of that PSI. We can go back to our own domicile. We can go have some alone time. We can go hang out with our friends or our buddies, and it's not weird, okay? We can project our premarital experience onto our marriage, and we can wonder why it's not the same once we're in the marriage. And it's simply because the relationship is different. The premarital and the marital relationship are not the same. The second well we draw from is our growing up experience in marriage, what we've witnessed. Now, maybe you witnessed good, healthy, seemingly perfect marriages growing up, either from your own parents or, or whomever you observed, and you may assume that your marriage will be just like that. Or the opposite. Maybe you witnessed toxic or painful or or, or destructive relationships and you then naturally assume mine will never be that way ever. Far be it from me to follow that path. Ultimately, ultimately, the wells that we draw upon fill our expectations that we have of a marriage. We need to discover what God expects of our marriages, not what we expect. And that's the journey that we're all on. For all believers, regardless of the marriage conversation or not, we are always trying to decipher what God's plan, what his will is for our lives. Why isn't blank, fill in the blank, um, the way I thought it would be or not the way I thought it would be? We're always asking this question because we're always being informed or filled by the well of life experiences that we draw from. Growing up as a high schooler in the 90s, I thought everybody fit into two camps. You had the the friends camp, and then you had the Seinfeld camp. And everybody seemed to sort of align. Then there was the Melrose Place people, but they were totally different. We don't talk about them. I was a Seinfeld guy, so that describes to you a lot of what's rolling around up here at every moment. These shows shaped our expectations of life in your 20s or in your 30s. And as it turned out, 
Neither of these were very accurate. By the way, if you do find yourself living out any Seinfeld-esque scenarios, you have problems. And our response to this expectation should always be to seek God's plan, God's will for our life, to be ultimately, at the end of the day, our desire is to be the man or to be the woman that God is calling us to be because I think that's the kind of man and woman that the world needs us to be like. Here's another common expectation. Are other people's marriages like this? Well, yes, they are. And no, they're not. Yes, in that there are hard times and good times. And no, in that no two relationships ever perfectly mirror one another. This is also a dangerous question to ask because it can come from a place of dissatisfaction. And ultimately, the next question asked is, maybe, or I I wonder if I would be happier with someone else. Remember, Our marriages are tools that can shape us more into the image of God. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that here in a moment. Not just a means to make our spouse more into the image that we want them to be. Here's the final expectation. Did I marry the wrong person? Did I marry the wrong person? And I know this can seem far-fetched, especially if you're young in love in the throes of being Twitterpated in whatever relationship you're in. People get into marriages with the best of intentions, and yet they can still have this doubt. The expectation question here comes from a needle-in-a-haystack view, meaning that you've got to find the exact right person and it's like finding a needle in a haystack. Think about it. We've got over 7.5 billion people on a planet. 51% are women. So billions of people to choose from. And we assume very narrowly that there's just this one perfect, this missing piece, right? This one person that can complete me. Well, I got news for you. The success of your marriage isn't solely based on your spouse. Remember, it's not about marrying the right partner, but it's about being the right partner. Another challenge to the needle in a haystack mentality is that it assumes your spouse will be the exact same person now and in the future as they were then. And that's also not true and it's just not realistic. We change, we grow, and the hope is that we change and we grow together in sync. We're going to talk more about what it means to be in sync and and out of sync next week. All right, we're about to land the plane. Here's the third thing I wanted to discuss today. Why marriage? Why do we even do this thing? In short, the answer lies in a biblical rationale for the concept of marital covenant between a man and a woman. There's an author named Gary Thomas. Read everything that he writes. He's great. Uh, He's an author, he's a speaker, and he's a friend of mine. And he's got this wonderful book, came out about 20 years ago, called Sacred Marriage. And in it, he suggests that marriage is more about making us holy than it is about making us happy. Here's something else. Marriage is what bookends the Bible. In a sense, the earthly kingdom began with the separation and then joining of man and woman, or for our purposes, a husband and a wife, Adam and Eve. And Joe preached on this a couple of weeks ago. That's the first bookend. Then flash forward to Revelation, the end of the Bible, chapter 21, And we read of the other bookend, God's kingdom arriving with the separation and eventual joining of a bride and a groom, or the church and Jesus. 
Marriage is more than a practical aspect to God's design for human procreation. It's actually the chief metaphor used to describe the oneness that we are to have with God. The Bible never states that marriage is about our happiness, but rather it transcends logic, cultivating a human spirit that is others-focused and selfless. Now, for this type of enduring covenant to take place, there needs to be uh, more than mere infatuation. If infatuation or romantic love alone was all we needed, we would honestly be exchanging marriage relationships about every three years. You can look at the, the you know, celebrities and the tabloids and see how fast folks turn through these things. It has a lot to do with the human brain and how long we're able to maintain this Twitter-pated um, infatuation. And then eventually, if a relationship does not have uh, intimacy cultivated and a solid foundation, when that Twitter-pated dopamine in the brain drops off, the relationship just doesn't have a lot going for it. And so that's why you see about an 18 to 36-month window on a lot of relationships. Anyway, I digress. What's required to make a marriage last is the simple but the not easy, and that is love. Now, for a biblical rubric of love, check out you know, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We read this wonderful language about love is patient and kind. It's not envious or boastful. Check it out. It's wonderful. Another author describes uh, what love is, at least in the context of marriage. His name is Everett Worthington, and his book, uh, Hope Focused Marriage Counseling, he says, love is being willing to value the other person and being unwilling to devalue that person. Real love, true love, goes far beyond infatuation, for time has a way of dealing with infatuation. And no truer statement has been made than right now during the tensions of, of COVID. This love that I'm talking about isn't something that one merely falls into, but it is something that you actually have to choose. You have to pursue it. Love at first sight has not withstood the test of time, but when you've been looking at someone for several years and you still love them, that's remarkable. That is a long obedience in the same direction. This love is a lofty ideal. The pursuit of the lofty ideal of love doesn't end with the wedding ceremony, but continues on through life together. Listen to the words of Jesus. The Last Supper in John chapter 15, verses 12 to 13, he says, My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. That's, uh, that's from the NIV or the New International Version of the Bible. And if I was to create my own new barren version paraphrase, it would say this, love isn't fair and marriage is for losers. Let me explain. I can tell you that Jesus did not live fairly, but he rather modeled unfair love in every way. He laid down his life for friends and enemies, folks like me and folks like you. And he had no expectation that anyone would ever do the same for him. It's totally unfair. Defies logic and reason in every way. And that's why I say that marriage isn't fair. Marriage is at its best only when two individuals involved don't play fair, but rather lose their lives for the sake of the other. Now, the life-losing marriage doesn't mean that you lose identity, dignity, or individuality, but rather a mutual losing of autonomy, independence, and your right to control. You give up sovereignty in exchange for surrender. 
Maybe you're just starting out. Maybe you've been at a marriage or in a relationship for several years. Let me remind you that marriage shouldn't be fair. What if your other friendships weren't fair? What if you just loved your neighbor as yourself regardless of what you got back in return? I think that's the heart of what Jesus says in the great commandment. Marriage and friendships and relationships should be a radical giving away of oneself for the lofty ideal of love, going beyond infatuation and inconvenience and embracing moments of surrender. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I know we have stirred the hearts and the minds of everybody hearing this message right now because we're all coming into uh, this Sunday in a different place. We've had a a season of, of stress and trial in these last several months, regardless of where we're at. And I know that a lot of what I said could be particularly encouraging to some, depending on the place they're at, or or maybe even triggering for others. And so I pray, Lord, that you speak into all of us where we're at to bring encouragement, to bring hope, to bring healing where there needs to be healing. In Jesus' name, amen.